For a few moments, I'd like you to once again close your eyes. You don't have to get in any special position, but close your eyes and bring your awareness into your body and feel the warmth Feel the heat radiating around the surface of your skin. Be aware that that heat (coughs) is generated by the fires of the sun. you take in in various forms and then is transformed into your living energy. What we call life on this planet is all fueled by the fires of the sun. So you can open your eyes now. It's just a little experiential move toward being connected to our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy rays. The masculine energy of the sun, soul, el soul. Tomorrow is the solstice and uh, traditionally the sun is honored Just a few hundred years ago, the native Pomo and Baloney would be sitting out here, maybe on Spirit Rock, because that was a ceremonial site. And they would be looking at the hills over there and they'd be watching. There would be someone whose job it was to watch the sun rise at a particular spot. And when it rose at a particular spot for several days in a row, they would know that it had reached its zenith and that from then on the days were going to grow shorter, that that was the, big, that was the solstice. And they would feast in honor of that moment. In Europe, the pagans would light bonfires and have big parties and uh, feast uh, on the bounty of the sun and there was lots of uh, wild romping in the summer grasses. So I think uh, you should all celebrate the solstice whatever way you see fit. (laughs) Honor the masculine principle. I don't think, you know, I don't think there's any coincidence that Father's Day falls so close to the summer solstice. I have a poem here by Liesl Mueller. One more hymn to the sun. You know that like an ideal mother, she will never leave you. 
makes the son into a mother. I don't quite understand that. But you know that like an ideal mother, she will never leave you, though after a week of rain you begin to worry. But you accept her brief absences as the prerogative of an eccentric lover. You also know which side of the bed she gets up on, though being a night person, you're on more intimate terms with the moon who lets you watch while the sun will put out your eyes for tampering with her privacy. You like the fact that her moods are an orderly version of yours, arranged like the needs of animals, by seasons, her spring quirks, her sexual summers, her steadfast warmth in the fall, and you remember her face on Christmas Day, blurred and suffused with the weak smile of a woman who has just given birth. And the way she loves you, your whole body, and still leaves enough space between you to keep you from turning to cinders before your time. And she never gave up on you, though it took you billions of years to learn the alphabet. And the shadow you cast on the ground changed its shape again and again. We are lucky to have uh, just this perfect-sized sun, mid-sized star, basically, small to mid-sized. You know, there are billions of them out there. Ours is just right for us, and uh, we are just the right distance from it. If we were just a few thousand miles closer, you know, it wouldn't be ashes to ashes. It would just be ashes. And if we were a few million, a few thousand miles, just a few thousand miles uh, further away, you know, we'd all be like living around the equator, and maybe we would still be woolly mammoths or something. You know, we, it would be really hard to stay warm. So this is perfect, uh, a perfect sun for growing living things and human beings. D.H. Lawrence insisted that we, our love was so diminished the way we thought of love because we had taken it away from the sun and the rising and the setting of the sun and the moon and the earth and we had made it just a personal thing between people and he said it, it, we, it's, it's dying in its civilized va vase on the table, love. We need to reconnect with the moving cosmos. This evening I wanted to do a little reflection with you on this medium that we all are living in, moving through, and that we rarely notice like the proverbial fish with the water, not noticing the water. And the medium that I want to reflect on a little is our moment in history, our cultural moment, our civilization. The time that we live in has such a powerful influence on our lives, on how we behave, on how we think, and on how we feel about ourselves. 
And to reflect on that influence and that power is to help us depersonalize our own drama a bit and to see our desires and our fears and our confusion in context. And I think we are living in a very extraordinary time, what Joanna Macy calls the great turning. We're living in a in a, in a transitional era. In just the last few hundred years, many of the great traditional ways of life have broken down, have changed. Ways of life and beliefs that had been practiced by humans and uh, part of human life for thousands of years. I think about my father, uh, who always used to say to us kids, my sister and me, we live like kings here. He would say this to us as we were sitting around uh, our little kitchen table in the Midwest, uh, a formica table, having meatloaf and jello and, you know, the usual. And he'd say, we live like kings here. My sister and I would roll our eyes, you know. (laughs) But my father uh, was raised in Poland, came over to the United States when he was 17. Uh, His parents had a little grocery store in a rural area over there, Uh, you know, one step up from the peasantry. And to him, this was just, this was so sumptuous. And he, he was right, you know. I mean, we, we all live like only the kings and aristocrats lived just a few hundred years ago. Just a few hundred years ago, most of our ancestors were peasants. Things have really changed a lot. I think about my grandparents, who were in an arranged marriage. You know, the uh, the tribal marriage arranger. Uh, what do they call them? Uh, yeah, there you go. See, I'm forgetting my my Yiddish. That's it's all it's all being washed away, isn't it? That person arranged my grandmother and grandfather's uh, marriage. And for many peoples, for many, many hundreds of years, uh, the idea of romantic love and choosing your partner was just unheard of. It just didn't happen. These relationships that we now struggle with so much are a brand new thing. (laughs) it's hard to get used to that's maybe why we have so much trouble with them to reflect on that is to put it into some perspective Um, most people lived uh, just a few hundred years ago in extended families extended family situations and households this whole idea of the single-family household is relatively new and the result of a very affluent society where people can go off and have their own little 
contain space for just the nuclear family, if that. I just met a man who was at a retreat with me, and he, he said he just, uh, his son just got married to a Pakistani woman. And he said uh, he went over there and to the Pakistani, uh, to have the wedding over there, and he said the Pakistanis told him they, they have no uh, nursing homes and old age homes and uh, there in Pakistan. It's un, unheard of. They're, they don't exist because the old people live with their children. It's a whole new situation that we, that we cope with in this particular moment in our history. Work life. I know a lot of you probably have struggled over what should I do, you know, what career should I take on, what, you know, and then you, you get through a career and you get to midlife and you think, well, maybe I'll choose something else and what should that be? And that's brand new. It's really brand new. I mean, if you met a peasant uh, a thousand years ago or a wandering desert nomad, and you said, what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> you know? They would not know what you're talking about. It's a completely new situation. Mobility. We have recently experienced a revolution in our understanding of ourselves. And it's a real revolution that we, are, we haven't even begun to integrate or cope with. You realize that it was only 1926 when Edwin Hubble actually proved that there were any other galaxies in the universe. I remember it was sometime in the mid-90s, or uh, the Hubble telescope began sending back pictures of the sky, and there was a like a nickel-sized picture, just a nickel-sized piece of the sky was photographed, and they discovered 20 billion new galaxies in that little piece of the sky. Now, you know, I mean, maybe we're so used to these gargantuan figures and numbers coming out that we it no longer has any impact. But I would think that we would fall on our knees in awe to suddenly realize that there were 20 billion more galaxies in the universe. Billions of suns. For most of our history as humans, we have lived believing that we we're the center of it all and everything, you know. The reason for it all, the center of it all. What does that do to our, our self-esteem? I mean, <laughs> no wonder we have self-esteem classes. I mean, I think subconsciously it, it has an effect, and, but we don't, we don't quite know how to integrate it or, or understand it yet. I mean, Galileo, I think... You know, he said that 
the earth goes around the sun, and the Catholic Church made him retract that. The church actually forgave Galileo in 1979. <laughs> I thought that was big of them. But there, I mean, the, the, the shock to us collectively, and, and maybe we haven't really realized it yet, quite enormous. And then Darwin. <laughs> we thought we were so special that for most of our history, we thought we had nothing to do with the rest of the life of this planet, that we came from some, we must have come from somewhere else, and we're kind of plopped down here to run the show. And then all of a sudden, and just 200 years ago, a few people looked at the apes and said, I don't know, maybe there's some... <laughs> that is a major shift in how we see ourselves, how we understand ourselves. We've given so much weight to our existence. What do these new revelations mean? And how do we integrate them? And how do we find the spirituality and the way to live with, the, with this new understanding? Perhaps the message is that we need to unhumanize ourselves a bit. Not dehumanize ourselves, but unhumanize ourselves. Unsentimentalize a little bit the weight we put upon this life. I think a little bit that's what the Dharma is about. Understanding that this is a momentary occurrence, elements coming together in a particular way, arising and disappearing, not placing quite so much weight on things. Physics, boy, they pulled the rug out from under us, didn't they? A hundred years ago, 1900, Max Planck developed the quantum theory. Einstein, matter is energy. Basically saying there is no thingness. It's all process. It's a light show. Really? Physicists say matter is essentially gravitationally trapped light. Of course, the Buddha and the other sages have been saying that for centuries, but now we have proof. <laughs> and self, the sense of self, which is so core to what we do in meditation and Buddhism. It didn't always feel this way to be somebody. This is a whole new construct of self that we live with and that we carry around with us. The psychologist Rollo May says, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live. 
unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. A famous study in the 60s by uh, anthropologist Julian James, who studied early Greek literature and came to the conclusion that the early Greeks thought all the voices in their heads were actually the voices of the gods, that they didn't generate any of that stuff that is in their head. Now, we, of course, today would call that schizophrenic. But now, we think that we generate all the voices that are in our heads, which is its own kind of schizophrenia and its own kind of delusion. We really think that it's all created by us. Charles Taylor, famous sociologist, wrote a book called Sources of Self. Talk about identity in the modern sense would have been incomprehensible to our ancestors of just a few centuries ago. He says this current view of self was born in the Enlightenment, which was a poorly named age, uh, especially to Buddhists. But the it, it was during the Enlightenment and the awakening of science that the idea arose that, uh, that we are all very reasonable creatures and that we control the world with the reason. And the most uh, famous philosopher of that era, Descartes, said, I think, therefore I am announcing, really separating mind from body, separating the human from the rest of creation. Uh, it was a major kind of split between what had been believed about self for centuries and what was now the currency of this concept of self. A radical shift. Ever since then, heads are us. We believe that this is who we are. We never give any uh, credence to the outside world, circumstances. Nobody says God willing anymore about events. It's all about us, what we create, we believe we create our own destiny completely, that uh, chance has nothing to say about it. We really live in, in this delusion of like a, being a separate monad, going to, through life unaffected by the outside world. We're in here, the world is out there. We hardly ever understand or feel our embeddedness in nature, our embeddedness in community. There used to be this thing they called participation mystique. And people felt part of a tribe, uh, a community, a family, a, a, a world. We seem to have lost a lot of that because of this emphasis on the individual. The emphasis on the individual in the last hundred years has been Phenomenal. It has just... Now, I remember the 60s, it was uh, 
Do your own thing. Be yourself. Find yourself. Express yourself. I think that was the 70s. Uh, <laughs> Tom Wolfe called the 70s the me decade, remember? So I guess that means the 80s were the, was the me-me decade and the 90s the me-me-me decade. And where will it end? The, the modern self really finds its full expression here in America, even though it started in Europe. This is the land of individualized license plates. <laughs> we all have our little markers to prove that we exist as individuals. The first time the word individualism was used was in 1835 by Alex de Tocqueville writing about his perceptions in America. There was a recent book, and I, I've forgotten who wrote it, but it was called The Culture of Narcissism. Anybody? Yes, Christopher Lash. He writes, um, Our lives are infused with images and values that could have been lifted right out of the standard diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder found in psychological textbooks. Grandiose self-importance or uniqueness, fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, Marked feelings of rage, inferiority, shame, humiliation, or emptiness in response to criticism or the indifference of others. Entitlement, relationships that alternate between over-idealization and devaluation. On and on. This is a new experience. I'm not, this is not to condemn anybody or the uniqueness of this feeling of being so separate and so caught up in the individual drama of I, me. On top of it all, we have the uh, technological revolution, which has been completely awesome and has changed the face of this planet and the nature of life on this planet through this species. By the way, the, in 1900, there were a billion and a half people on the planet. In 1950, there were three billion. Now there are six billion. You can feel it, right? Look how crowded it is in here. I mean. <laughs> This is a this has been a huge change in the way we live and the way we see ourselves and I mean I think there's definitely a feeling now of limits that we maybe have reached the limit of our numbers and as members of this very affluent society I think we're all beginning to sense that we have reached the limits of our consumption certainly hasn't brought us happiness. Technological revolution, I tried to go through 
some of the uh, 100 years ago, or 150 years ago, no airplanes, hardly any radio, and the radio was just born about 100 years ago, no movies, no television, no computers, no painkillers. <laughs> this is not good or bad, you know, the technological revolution had both blessings and curses. No painkillers, no antibiotics, no birth control. No hecklers? <laughs> what was I, I didn't hear that I didn't hear that. It's okay. <laughs> Will someone take that woman and, and give her medicine out there? Uh, no birth control. What a revolution that was, huh? Kids, didn't we have fun? Uh, no plastic, no Ziploc bags, no open heart surgery. In the last 200 years or so, which isn't, see, we're talking a very short time span. The last 200 years or so, the average lifespan has nearly doubled. What does it feel like to be alive now? Our confusion is in common. Our difficulties, our joys and sorrows are held in common. We move as a group. And we're living in a brand new world than, than our ancestors did. We're, we're, we're navigating new territory here. To know that and to understand that is to help us not only depersonalize our own difficulties and drama, but also to arouse compassion for each other, knowing that we're all sharing this adventure. Um, the evolutionary biologists say that we're working with brains that were designed over millions of years for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers. We still have that brain. Which explains our addiction to shopping, I think. <laughs> if it's out there, you go get it, you know? I mean... <laughs> but it also helps explain, I think, our confusion and maybe our territorial ways and... Uh, The point is that when we when we really uh, when we really reflect on the time, uh, their uniqueness, we do begin to forgive ourselves and each other. We're all trying to figure it out. What will the new story be? How do we take the the new information, for instance, and and what will our rituals be? How do, we, how do we devise rituals that will once again bring us into some kind of harmony with nature, for instance? I think we all sense this kind of apocalyptic time that we're living in. We read the newspapers and, you know, the fifth or sixth largest species die off in biological history. Just a month ago, I read 
in the Chronicle the results of a UN millennial study on the ecosystems of the planet. The headline of this little story was humans destroying their own habitat rapidly, says UN study. That was really, that was the headline. It was on page six of the Chronicle. I think the Jackson trial was just starting, so, you know, to get things in perspective here. But we are getting these messages from our media all the time, and we are absorbing them, and I think there is a sense of malaise and a sense of apocalypse. And what do we do? How do we change our life? How do we behave? How do we treat each other? Nietzsche said that Buddhism was a religion for the end and fatigue of civilizations. I think part of the reason that we're here is because we sense a need and a hunger for connection, for a new integrated view of ourselves, to perhaps break out of the the individual ego, which is a burden to carry around, you know, I mean, the, the highly structured self, what does this guy call it, uh, the bound, bounded, the bounded masterful self, uh, psychologist Philip Cushman, the bounded masterful self, as if we're totally in control of everything, our destiny, and it's a burden. It's not easy to carry it. That's part of our, the reason we're here. And I think we're here again to ask the most basic questions. When we sit in meditation, we ask those most basic questions. Who am I? Where did I come from? What is this life all about? We used to have these answers, these stories that answered those questions for us. And many of us have lost those stories and now are searching for some other story. I mean, I, I remember trembling in synagogue when I was a kid on Yom Kippur, asking, praying that God would write me in the Book of Life for another year. You know, that was... And I, re, I actually remember thinking... Is this a good way to run a universe, you know? On <laughs> but now, and now I, I look at myself, you know, I look at myself as an example of this transformation and this upheaval. Now I have a, I never, hardly ever go to synagogue. I do celebrate Passover. I have a private altar at home. I mean, nobody that I knew growing up had a private altar at home. I can hear my grandmother saying, Alter, schmalter, is the synagogue not good enough for you, you know? <laughs> I have a private altar at home. I have, the, I have a, the digni a statue of the dignified Buddha. I have a statue of the laughing Buddha, the Chinese laughing Buddha. I have a coyote, uh, a wooden coyote figure. I have a picture of the goddess Kali. I have a, uh, some nati nati native fetish uh, objects. Um, I rotate things deities in and out sometimes, you know. 
I'm a spiritual slut. I can, well, you know, I just... But I, I find myself, you know, I'm looking for finding meaning, finding value in, in, in many different traditions. And that's one of, I mean, one of the blessings of this time, maybe. But I think that's a big, a big reason why we're here is because of the times we're living through. And it's actually heroic. I think we all should honor ourselves for doing as well as we do in the world we live in with its continual messages of desire and you're not enough and you're, you know, live in fear, something is going to get you, something, you know, it's it, the pulsing of these messages from our culture. I think we all recognize that and we want to shift out of that. We want to shift to a a more easeful mind and a more peaceful existence. We want to slow down. That's why we're here. And we're here because it also is a community and we know we, we can recognize each other and we know that we are all sharing, sharing in this. My friend Joanna Macy says, we're lucky to be alive now. The chances of becoming a bodhisattva are highly increased. Einstein says, the true value of a human being is determined primarily by the measure and the sense in which he has attained liberation from the self. And the Buddha, true happiness, he said, comes from eliminating the false sense of self. We are a community. We are awakening as a community. So thanks for, for being a cell in this organism that is awakening. We feed each other. Forgive each other. Forgive yourself. Forgive each other wonderful line by the Japanese poet Ikkyu. There's no way not to be who you are and where. I think that's uh, all I have to say. Maybe uh, we could have a little bit of time for discussion or comment or don't ask me any hard questions. <laughs> But, you know, if you would like to add anything to this, to what I, I said tonight. It seems to me like the press has gone to sleep since 9-11. Uh, that is to say that they don't report anything important. You joked about Michael Jackson being on the front page and this other article about the environment being on page six, and it seemed like the whole press has, has just gone to sleep since 9-11. And I wonder if you've noticed that, and what do you think about it? Well, I certainly noticed it, and uh, I, I think that it's symptomatic of, of a larger thing that's happening, and that is um, that we are an empire, and that our 
our systems of exchange and our systems of uh, our institutions are encrusted and 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 bloated with with their own power and and wealth and uh, nobody wants to wants to pay attention to you know the core sickness uh, it's classic uh, one of my favorite books and actually I, I don't on a name drop. It was one of Joseph Campbell's favorite books, too, but uh, it was a book called The Decline of the West, and it was written by Oswald Spengler in 1930, and he was a historian and anthropologist, and he studied uh, all these ancient civilizations, uh, Egypt and Greco-Roman civilizations and the Mayans, and, and he said there is a pattern that happens that it happens over and over again. He said he saw civilizations like these organic forms that appear and grow and grow to maturity and grow old and brittle and then then fade away, collapse in one way or another. And uh, uh, Will Durant, in the, his book on the decline of the Roman Empire, wrote the, the decline of uh, Rome's decline was the result of a bloated and overextended military, widespread economic and political corruption, uh, public apathy and hedonism, uh, uh, colonial peoples flooding into the mother country and diluting the dominant culture, addiction to and dependence on foreign resources, It happens the same way every time. It, and he said that he, he saw the, the European-American hegemonies as being in decline even in 1930. I mean, the, the signs of it. And, and he said that, that's, he said, no judgment. It's just the way things happen in history. But, you know, decline and fall could ruin your whole day, you know. <laughs> it is something that I think we have to deal with, and what, what you deal with in that time also, and he, he goes through this brilliant kind of analysis. Arts and culture become more and more uh, trivial and demeaning, and because uh, all the forms are used up, all the plots have been used up, everything's been done over and over again. Um, well, you know, it's it just one thing after another. It sort of goes into a, a period of, of decay. Now, out of that arises a new culture, new forms, new thoughts, new, new ways of doing things, new beliefs, new technologies. Who knows what the next one's going to look like or where it'll come from? But that's one thing we, we are dealing with, I think. Along with the, the sense of apocalypse in, in the natural world, and we are dealing with a sense of a shaky, a shaky system here. Start over again, I think, is the answer. Start over again and form new, smaller, organic little communities and build new forms and I'm such a, I'm such a hippie. I really am. <laughs> I'm, I'm so retrograde, honest. 
I can't, I can't stop, you know, having these big uh, plans for me and my generation. <laughs> Don't believe a word I say. Yeah. Uh, I had a question about how, and I hope this isn't too hard of a question, but <laughs> how do you uh, reconcile your desire for non-self with the desire to be Wes Nisker and to be a a personality and to be funny and to write books that people will read and mm -hmm. to be on the radio, etc. Uh, you know, I don't want to be Wes Nisker. <laughs> <laughs> I just am Wes Nisker. The more no, it's really and, and it's an, an interesting question. I, I really appreciate that question because it is more. I think the more I have seen this self, it's like when when I started meditating, I thought I was going to get rid of Westminster, and now I realize that I'm not. And then Westminster can just kind of come and do its do his dance, but I don't feel all that attached to it. I, I, I don't take that much credit for it. I didn't choose this wiring that happens to be able to make jokes. <laughs> I mean, I, no, I, I, I feel like it, I, I do have a gift and I can offer it, but, but I don't feel too involved in it. And that, I think, is the result of, of uh, the years of practice. And that's how I'd answer that. Aren't I cool? I hardly care about Westminster. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's a total trap to be up here. You know, there, you can't, you can't win. You can't win. Yes. Or sorry, you have the whoever has the mic rules. Tonight you reminded us of the fact that just like less or a hundred years ago there was about a sixth of the number of people there are now, and if if we accept the principle of reincarnation and that each one of us is a, a soul that has been living before and now continued into this body, how did there get to be so many more human souls? I mean, has our has our quality just degraded by a lot or what? <laughs> Next. <laughs> in your um, listing of all the things that had changed in the last few hundred years, you didn't mention the role of women. And uh, it strikes me that the changes in the women's role has really had a big impact on how things have, have changed, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that. Well, I, I think that's a, a, a part of the whole shifting of relationships, family relationships, women's place, uh, because of birth control, because of mobility, because of 
single fa fa nuclear family situations. I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, it's a it's a, that's a huge change and shift. That that's all I can say about it. But yeah, it's a big it's a big one. I, I've got a question for you. Um, actually, for all of us, perhaps. Uh, when I uh, when I hear someone like yourself who has you know described mankind as a ebb and flow, and uh, certainly a struggling consciousness. Your description of over the years with Darwin uh, being finally brought to light, and we look at you know something quite as obvious as your example of you know looking at the ape and saying, "My gosh, there is a resemblance here." But then we have to look at the fact that um, so much of our country beyond, you know, California, looking east, uh, still believes that, you know, Darwin was a heretic and still want to preach and want to teach the young that um, we are the crazy ones. I mean, to, to look at an ape and say that ape has some resemblance to man is to deny a, a basic belief system that has been handed down from generation to generation right and it 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 frightens me when i teach you know my children on uh, that the rest of the world outside of you know marin county and san francisco and you know california uh don't hold the same belief that we have mm -hmm. uh and the logic is uh you know is so seemingly so clear to us all one has to do is close their eyes and breathe, and you can begin to get a sense of being. But I don't get that the rest of the world, well, not the rest of the world, but the rest of our country, or the majority of our red state country anyway, uh, you know, don't get that. How does one make a, an impasse? How does one offer that wisdom to them? Well, I think I like the way you ended by saying how, how do you close that impasse and uh, because I think I think the the key word is fear and the key word uh, comes from the fact that in the last 50 to 100 years there have been so many revolutions sexual revolution feminism uh, the discover you know the integration of Darwinism and and that uh, people are are fearful and when you're fearful, you go back to, you try to find something that's solid and that you can hold on to, and you go back to the old story and the old way, you know, that this is the way we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna protect ourselves. You pull the wagons into a circle. And I think that's why you see fundamentalism all over the world now. I mean, 60s, 70s, I mean, things were, there was, you know, there was a shakeup in the moral order and in the, in the political order and, and people are scared, and that's why, and I, I don't think it has to last. I think that, you know, the less we can sort of say, oh my God, you idiots, how can you go 
and do you know go back to that, the more we can understand that they're also part of us trying to navigate this whole new era, that that that's the way to see it and and to begin to integrate or or to heal some of the the divisions. But I don't think it's going to be easy to to heal it and and. Uh, Yeah. Well, I think maybe one more. When I was listening to this question, what comes up for me is the term bridge. To me, which is what the Buddha was teaching, the bridge of acceptance, to see things just as it is. And we're sitting here not wanting to see the red state, I'm asking the red state to see it the way that I look at it. And I think that's part of the problem that we're not understanding here. And to me, the Buddha was teaching the bridge, and the bridge is to see it just as it is. And when you see it just as it is, then to me, compassion starts to unfold itself. And then your answer is right there. It just unfolds, and the heart is there, and the heart can just sit and feel everything mm -hmm. that exists. It doesn't matter whether it agrees with it, disagrees with it, because it's just sensation. Let me close with a poem, and then we will end the evening. So, friends, this is Wendell Berry. Every day do something that won't compute. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take all that you have and be poor. Love someone who does not deserve it. Denounce the government and embrace the flag. Hope to live in that free republic for which it stands. Give your approval to all that you cannot understand. Praise ignorance for what we have not understood, we have not destroyed. Ask the questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. <laughs> and as soon as the generals and the politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks, more tracks than necessary in the wrong direction. Above all, be kind. Practice liberation. Just sit for one moment before we leave. Thank you all for being, being here tonight and being part of us.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.